Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 35 verses 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance. He will come with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Lib. Well, do you have a song that reminds you of home? Just a song, when you hear it, you're like, whoa, I can feel it. My dad would listen to music all the time, whether it was like Vince Gill or Bonnie Raitt or... The queen herself, Aretha. I think Jesus is up in heaven with Aretha. He's just like, hey, um, will you sing Amazing Grace again? Like, can we hear it again? Aretha's like, Jesus, it's enough. We got eternity. So, well, okay. And the reality is, for, for us, you, you, you may have this sense when you hear a song. It, just, it, it almost has a weight to it, a feeling. Like home has this has this thing you can almost touch, right? The nostalgia, a safety. And there's something about beauty, something about listening to a song like that, this transcendence that draws us out of ourselves. It both satisfies something. It's like it it does something in us. You're like, yes, more of that. But it also creates this longing within us uh, to, to experience beauty, you know, to stand on the edge of something bigger than ourselves is not to, uh, you know, kind of revel in escapism. It's not to, to live a fantasy life. It's moving towards something true, towards something solid. It's really moving towards something we might call home. And today we've been in this series we're calling Advent EP, and we're going to play songs that are from the scriptures that are reflecting on what God is doing in the world. And today we're gonna, we've been in Luke, now we're going to kick it back to the old school and go to Isaiah 35, which, which Courtney read for us. And tracking back to Isaiah, we see the way that this song, this poem, paints a picture of home. But a picture of home 
can be almost a tease if we don't know the way there. You could see this picture in this place that you'd like to go to, but the question remains for us, how do we get there? And so today, I want to talk about home. I want to talk about this longing for a place, but I also don't want to leave you hanging. I want to say that there is a way there. But first, you know, like those signs in the mall that have the, the map that say, you, you want to go here? Well, you, you have to know where you are. So there's a star there. So today we're going to start with where we are, and then we're going to look at where we're going. So Isaiah 34, the chapter that precedes Isaiah 35, conveniently, and Isaiah 35 provide one of the starkest and the most glaring contrasts in the scriptures. In Isaiah 34, God is an active agent of judgment. Isaiah, throughout this, his beautiful and prophetic work, has been juxtaposing those who would elevate themselves and place themselves high up, and God, who is truly the high and lofty one. In the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. And Isaiah is in the temple and he sees God and his glory and his presence is just filling this space. And Isaiah responds in, in a sort of paradigmatic way, in a way that sort of we all might respond in this situation. He beholds God in the sanctuary. He sees God's glory, and he is terrified. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 6, he says, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Moses had said no one had, can see the face of God and live, and Isaiah's like, I'm going to die. This is terrifying. But then it says in verse 6 of Isaiah, it says, Then one of the seraphs, one of these flying creatures that are uh, attending to God, flies, it, it flies to Isaiah, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And it says, The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. And this scene this scene that we're kind of touching on very briefly functions as a lens for the whole book of Isaiah. God is the one who is truly reigning. He reigns over all the kingdoms of the world. And he is revealing his presence to the world. And our initial response is probably, is probably should be a lot like that of Isaiah's. When we see God in all his beauty and all his majesty and his glory, it should be like, oh God, don't kill me. And this is Isaiah's response. You see, the disparity of our small and pride-filled lives meets with the splendor of a God who reigns. And Isaiah does something simply. He acknowledges his weakness. But you see, even in this brief moment, Isaiah is despairing. He says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. But even in that moment, God is moving towards him. And this is God. He is not God that is far apart from us, God that is high and lofty and nowhere near our circumstances. Even though he is transcendent, even though he is beautiful and large, he is always moving towards us. God provides a way for Isaiah, and we're going to see how he provides a way for us today as we look at home and we see what's the way there. A way of cleansing, a way of renewal, and ultimately a way of transformation. But first, we're going to start with Isaiah 34. Verses 12 and 13, it says, 
They shall name it no kingdom there, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and an abode for ostriches. Which, I'm not sure why that's a judgment, but I'll leave that to some of you zoology people to let us know why ostriches would be an agent of the divine judgment of God. Next time you see an ostrich, look out. Now, when you think of a prideful person... What kind of person do you think of? What kind of person comes to mind? Don't point fingers also. When we think of a prideful person, someone who's boastful, we typically have this like cartoonish image of a brash person who can only talk about themselves in a conversation. Now, we've all met that person, right? Like where you're like, oh, okay, it's, it's been an hour now, and we're still talking about you. That's great. Now, when we think of prideful people, that tends to come to mind. I was at an event uh, for our church last year, and this guy came up to me, and he said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm worth over $2 million. <laughs> I was like, cool. That's great. I said, I have a bunch of uh, needy neighbors that I'd like to introduce you to. Um, but if, you, if you've ever been in this situation where you're talking to somebody who's a little bit boastful, it sticks out, right? Like, it's, it's pretty uh, prevalent. But there's a kind of pride that's not so on the surface, that's not so obvious. Because let's get real. Like, that kind of pride, like, sticks out like a sore thumb. And eventually, I, I think it's going to get called out. But there's this other kind of pride. It's not this boastful, loud pride. It's much more stealth. And, and I think much more prevalent. So I de- Isaiah is describing in, in Isaiah 34 this way of pride. He says these people are building a kingdom for themselves. And, and God says to him, this is what it's going to be called. It will be called no kingdom there. All its princes shall be nothing. And he goes on to describe the strongholds and fortresses which are symbolic of the weaponry of self-sufficiency are overgrown with weeds and crumbling all the best weapons that you can forge in order to uh, sustain yourself in the world are being overgrown, are being eaten away. And think of all the weapons of our own self-sufficiency. Isaiah here in Isaiah 34 is pronouncing judgment over these unnamed nations who think because of their superior armies, their horses, and their chariots, they can establish themselves as higher than God. Now, friends, I don't think any of you are dealing in arms today. But what I do know is that much like these nations were trying to bolster themselves and trying to build up a life and a kingdom that would say, you know what, God, we actually don't need your help. We're good here. You may not be dealing in arms this morning, but I wonder how many of us are trying to build kingdoms of self-sufficiency And there are all sorts of ways that this works out, right? Perfectionism, greed and hoarding, an obsession with your own physical appearance, addictions. All these things are trying to find some measure of sufficiency in things that we can grasp and control. Now, I... I, Frankly, I could list a laundry list of things that we try to use in this way, but I ultimately don't think that's my job, is to like name the, the specific thing that you struggle with and call it out, so you're like, oh man, it's on the list. Darn. But what I think is, 
is that the Holy Spirit does its work. It brings to mind these things in our midst this morning. And so I just simply have a question for you. What, what are you trying to use in your life? What are you trying to convince yourself will sustain you and will keep you? Because what's behind all of these things? Isaiah 34 is trying to, to say so very viscerally and plainly. What's behind all these sorts of things is a disregard for God. It's a way of walking this life that doesn't account for the God who made the world. The one that Isaiah saw in the temple high and lifted up. Living this life this way carries with it this illusion of control. That we can manage our circumstances. That we can order our lives according to our own designs. And that we can build our own kingdoms. And Isaiah says it. He says, you become a prince of a fake empire. The control is contrived. You really don't have any of it. But the consequences are quite real. Our fake kingdoms have no walls, have no protection, no cultivation, and thus become the haunt of jackals and apparently ostriches. Our worlds become worlds of dysfunction, of chaos, and ultimately hopelessness. Look at Isaiah 34, verse 10. It says, night and day... This, this empire of smoldering brokenness shall not be quenched. It shall, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. Wow. And here's what I think is even worse. This kind of wasteland that Isaiah is describing, we negotiate with this reality. We say to ourselves, we're going to pitch our tent here, that this is home. This is the world. It is what it is. Because when we disregard God, we lose our song. We lose our imagination that God could ever do a new thing in our midst. We believe the lies of our self-contrived world. We begin to think that whatever we can control, whatever we can come up with is all that there ever could be. The poet W.H. Auden which you'll hear from a lot today, writes of this kind of negotiating with reality. In his poem, September 1st, 1939, he says, Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home. Lest we should see where we are Lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home. And so what, what Auden is saying, what he's reflecting on with Isaiah is he's saying, not only is God saying that this, this is a consequence of our self-contrived empires, but what's worse is we, we say this is home. This is what life looks like for me now. And friends, I, I don't know where you walked in here from today. Whether you're feeling like you're in this sort of wilderness wasteland, that you've made your home in a world of disillusionment and denial, that you've built an empire of dust. But friends, just because Isaiah is describing where we are, just because he's saying, yeah, this is what will come of that, does not mean that he's saying this is where you will always be. And friends, a, a word I have for you today 
is that God is there. And we're going to see this in Isaiah 35, that he is making his way towards you. Psalm 139 says that even if you were to make your bed in the depths of hell, that God himself would be there. The world that God created in his goodness and in his beauty has been twisted, but God will not give up on it. In his book, Symphony for the City of the Dead, the author M.T. Anderson describes a musician playing in the ruins. And the scene is Leningrad in World War II. And there are bombs raging all around and buildings crumbling. You can imagine these like, incredible explosions that are happening. And every impulse within you would say, run and hide. Preserve your life. And M.T. Anderson in his book describes an old man during one of these bombing raids from the Germans. He goes and he picks up his violin. And he begins to play. And he, he plays this song as the ruins are, are raging around him, as bombs are exploding. And the question would be, is he just giving up? Like, has he just had enough? Is this it? All the facts of the ground say, take cover. But this old man in playing his violin is bearing witness to a deeper, and I would even say a truer, fact. The fact of hope. Anderson writes, as the man played, the terror was somehow less powerful. It had lost its grip on us. It was outside us now. And inside we had our music and we felt its power. His, his song begins to declare to a world of weaponry, of maximizing casualties, that beauty will in fact save the world. And this is what happens in the turn between Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 35. Isaiah 34 describes the wasteland, the world built by our own hands. But Isaiah 35 turns and says, but there is another way. There is a world built not by our own devices, but by the word of God. Isaiah 35 breaks into song like the bursting of the dawn. It says, the wilderness, the wasteland that we have made for ourselves and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the desert flower, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. In the midst of this world of judgment, God's grace, his new creation word rings out. Isaiah begins to see a vision not just a vision of brokenness, but a vision of home, a home that is not on another planet, not some uh, beachfront location that would be really nice. No, a home that's breaking through right in the midst of this broken world. Isaiah 35 begins to describe that the wilderness will break forth with the fruit like Carmel, which means garden land. Lebanon has these tall cedars out of which the most beautiful works of art and buildings are constructed. Sharon is a grassy plain that signals abundance and vitality. Isaiah is pronouncing imaginatively, hopefully, that right here, right in the midst of this wilderness world, a new world is breaking forth. This wilderness world that we rot by our own human pride, by our own human disregard for God, right here, God is singing a new song. And in doing so, he's planting a new world. Verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 35 begin to give us insight into how this will happen. It says that God himself will come. 
He will come and he will save us. Isaiah 34, with its vivid and terrible images of judgment and helplessness, uh, is trying to awaken us to the reality of Advent. We need nothing short of salvation. We don't just need uh, you know, some, some sense of like a nice little uh, promise. We need something beyond ourselves. Pride says that you don't need anything outside of yourself to secure you, to save you. Pride says that you can do it on your own. That, that faith is just for weak people. That faith is for people that can't quite figure out life, that need some sort of cosmic reassurance that it's all going to be okay. But Isaiah 35 is saying, no, no. You need a fresh word, like the word that brought the world to life. You need a word from God. Again, the poet Auden says it so beautifully. He says, the pilgrim way, or in Isaiah's language, the way of building our own empire has led to the abyss. Was it, was it to meet such grinning evidence we left our richly odored ignorance? Was the, triumph, was the triumphant answer to be this? The pilgrim way has led to the, the abyss. We who must die, which is all of us, demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act, the infinite become a finite fact? Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. The only thing that changes between Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 35 is the fact of God doing a miracle. When God comes to us, Eden is restored. The wilderness blooms. Life breaks out. There is safety from violence. You know, all these kind of images that we see, like ostriches and haunts of jackals and all that kind of stuff. Like, these people lived in a world where predators were a very real thing, where bandits on the way from one town to another were part of this. And so Isaiah is saying, poetically, he's saying, there is safety, there is security that God is promising to you. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that as God comes to us, he comes not with vengeance, but he comes to us to save. The judgment is that the light, as John says, shines in the darkness, and we show so often that we love the darkness. But the darkness cannot overcome the light, or as one translation of John 1 says, the darkness cannot master the light. Ecclesia, I will say this to you as long as I have the honor of being your pastor. The scriptures are a narrative of God drawing near to where we are, of him moving towards us even when we move away from him. In Isaiah 35, is about this, is about what happens when God draws near. Transformation, salvation, peace, provision, healing. This is a picture of God's shalom. Isaiah has just finished describing a world completely undone in chaos in chapter 34. And now, against all the facts on the ground, he lifts up a song of hope. And it's, it's not that things have suddenly changed. The only thing that's changed is that God is now making something new happen. He's speaking a new word. It's not that history has this continuous progression towards the better, upward and to the right. No, if anything, we've seen that we who must die demand a miracle. We need God to do something beyond ourselves. And this is what Advent is about. A miracle breaking through in the midst of a hopeless night. Jesus himself was born, God with us. And he comes to us in our brokenness. 
Because the scriptures are a narrative about God coming to us and making his home with us. And look at what Isaiah describes when God comes to our space, when God moves into the neighborhood. Look at what Isaiah 35 describes. He says the, ble- the desert will bloom with life. Blind eyes are open. Deaf ears are open. The lame can leap like a deer. The speechless sing for joy. Waters to water the land and to quench thirst have burst forth in the desert. The burning sand becomes a pool. The haunt of jackals, which is referenced in Isaiah 34, is now brimming with life and is safe from predators. If you look at Isaiah 35 closely, we see this astounding truth. Have you ever, I assume some of you are a little more skilled than I am, but have you ever been working on something or trying to fix something and you just realized your only course of action was to start over? Like, and usually, usually something will start, if it's, particularly if I'm trying to fix something, something will start at a certain level of brokenness. And then as I enter into the equation, it takes on a new level of brokenness. And many, many uh, colorful words later, I'm like, you know what? We should just buy a new one. But it's amazing that that's not what God is doing here. God is not pressing the reset button on the whole thing. He doesn't intend to throw it away. Rather, he announces the very spaces that we have made to be bleak through our own pride, through our own disregard for God, will bloom and be glad. They will rejoice and they will blossom. Friends, I I, I don't know where you are today. If you're standing in the ruins of your own failure, the wasteland of dreams, dead or deferred, if your own pride and sinfulness has built for you this kind of imaginary kingdom, I don't know where you look at your life and say, I wish I could just start over. Can you hear the word that is for you today? God is coming to you. Right in the midst of the ruins of your own life, God is coming to you and speaking a new word. Now for others of you, you, you walked in here and you're without a care in the world. You're like, save us? Save us from what? Life is awesome. This is great. Like, I am master of my own fate. I, I can do anything I set my, my hand to. And you just generally feel that life is this, like, upward and to the right trajectory, and that it's always going to be awesome. Can I, not to bring you down, but can I invite you to consider the facts on the ground? That without God, without God moving into our lives, that there, there's no fullness of life. We need his salvation, his steadfast love to come and transform even our lives when they seem so pristine and so beautiful. This is the narrative of the people of Israel. God blesses them. They forget God and they begin to move away from God. They begin to exercise their own pride instead of worship and they fall into cycles of brokenness. Advent is inviting us all to see ourselves under the same sun, that we are all broken and we all need a God to come and move in our midst. And you may be saying, okay, this picture in Isaiah 35 sounds really nice. The wilderness blossoming, all that nice stuff. No more ostriches, really into that. But how do we get there? Like, is this the promise that Jesus has for us is that one day it's all going to be okay, right? Like, I don't know about for you, but that, that always, I don't know, that, that was attractive to me, but not right now. Like, so when I, uh, I always believed in God, even when I wasn't a 
follower of Jesus, but I just couldn't be convinced how that had anything to do with my life right now. Like, I could see this picture of heaven where everything was all good and all tears were wiped away. I was like, That's, that sounds awesome. I'm into that. But I'm 15 right now. I'm, I'm not going to die tomorrow, so why do I need to worry about that? But what Isaiah is painting is quite a different picture, isn't it? It's about this world being transformed by God's Word. And so for me today, I, I want to not just hold a picture of home over your head and be like, wow, look how awesome it's going to be. But I want to give uh, you know, witness to what Isaiah is actually saying. He's saying the wilderness will bloom. There is a way forward right here and right now that God is coming to us, that He is moving towards us, and He is inviting us along on His way. Isaiah 35 has not a destination of peace at the end of it all in mind, but a journey of peace, a way of security and peace in the middle of the darkest night, in the middle of the wilderness. Inherent in Isaiah 35 is not this static life that we get to live, but is movement, a journey, a walk with, with God through life. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 35, and it says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And they shall come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The movement here is towards God, towards Zion. The things that are running away are sorrow and sighing. Zion, Zion was the name for Jerusalem, the city of David. It signified the peace and the presence and the glory of God. Isaiah 35 was written to exiles, to people who had been removed from their homes, taken far from their homeland. What Isaiah 35 is telling us is that God himself is going to come to us in the middle of the barren wasteland that is our sin-soaked, pride-filled lives, and he's going to transform those ruins into the Garden of Eden. And he's going to lead us and walk with us. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, and I love this, not even fools, shall go astray. He's like, the way will be so obvious, like you can't even miss it. No lion shall be there, nor shall there be any ravenous beast to come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Isaiah is saying that there is a way home, that God is himself making the way. And then Jesus will come along as he comes to us, as he expresses what God has promised, God puts into motion. And as Jesus lives his life, he expresses this reality that I will make a way. The wilderness will bloom. And in John chapter 14, Jesus is sitting with his friends and he says to them, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas, because he always asks the best questions, says, Lord, we do not know how to get there. He says, how can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Friends, Jesus as God with us is not trying to give us some nice example of the way that God wants us to live our lives. What he's saying is the, the, the line of Auden, that we who must die demand a miracle. That Jesus himself is the way home. That he is our home. In my house there are many dwelling places. I tell you this because it is true. And as Thomas asked, well, how do we get there? How do we get to a place where the wilderness dwells? Jesus says, I am the way. And this morning, we consider Jesus' life. We consider that he was born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. We consider that Philippians 2 says that though he was equal to God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. Even submitting to death on a cross, Jesus shows us that God's way is the way of self-giving love. And that right here in our midst, Jesus didn't come to some other world. He came and he walked the dusty streets of Bethlehem. He came and he walked several thousand miles away. And his story is still bearing life and fruit in our day. Because that story is not about something that happened. It's about something that happens. And this picture that God has for us of a home that is safe and secure with Him is not some promise that He holds over our head, but He comes and He takes our hand and He shows us the way. And so friends, this morning, how do we get there? How do we walk along the way of Jesus? I'm going to tell you it's very complicated. Surrender. That thing that you're holding on to, that thing that you think that you are building your own uh, false empire around, give it up. Turn it over to Jesus because he is coming to you. He is offering you life and salvation. He's coming to you to walk alongside you because the scriptures are about God making a way, but not making a way so that we would be the kind of perfect people that he likes, the kind of shiny toys that he's like, shows on his wall, and he's like, look how cool my people are. No, because God wants to be with you. He himself is the way because God enjoys walking alongside you. He himself is the way. He makes a way for salvation because God loves you, and he made you, and he wants you to have the fullness of life that he offers to us. He is the way to this world of peace that he describes for us. Jesus lives this way to invite us into it. And friends, if you're standing in the ruins this morning, if you're standing in in a place where you're like, I don't know if there's a way forward from here, he is coming to you. And he is speaking a word of new life. And then he doesn't just leave you there and say, good luck, I'll see you in heaven. He says, take my hand. I will be your shepherd. I will be your guide. I will walk with you cloud by day, fire by night. I am your God. So Advent is about God with us. And often the thing that is standing between us and God, because Jesus has said, I have been lifted up. I have drawn all people to myself. Often the thing that's keeping us from coming to him as he's come to us is simply our pride. And so I'm going to ask you, church, Would you just lay it down this morning? That fake empire that you've built with your hands, that thing that you've convinced yourself will secure you, is going to fail. We who must die demand a miracle. Lord, what is the way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Would you pray with me? Beautiful Jesus.
God, I, I pray that we would, we would see the disparity between our ways and yours. Not, not so we could beat ourselves down and be like, yes, Lord, you're right. You're always right. God, but as an invitation, Lord, as an invitation to find that you did not send your son into the world to condemn it, but to save it because you so loved the world and you so loved each and every single person in it. God, that you would live our way, that you would walk our world. God, that we would see that your life is self-giving love and that you are making a way Not a way that is only in a far and distant future. It is not less than that, God. But it is a way that breaks into our ruins, into our wasteland right now. And so, God, would you help us to see that the redeemed of the Lord will walk back to Zion with singing and joy. That sorrow and sighing are fleeing away now in your presence. God, would you help us to see that you have invited us to a way that is more beautiful and more uh, precious to the world than the way that we would choose for ourselves. God, would we see that even at our most broken, God, even where our, the places in our lives where, that are overgrown with thorns and thistles, Lord, you are causing the wilderness to bloom. And the desert is rejoicing with abundance and with gladness, God. May we sing Isaiah's song. And may it not just be true for a world that we hope to see someday, but true for our own lives as we surrender our pride, as we put away our crowns of a fake empire and embrace your crowns that call us your daughter and your sons. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.